0: Welcome to today's episode of TAPCAST. I'm your host, Chloe Worziniak. In today's episode, we're talking to Eva Erber, a PhD student in the German department, and Eilish Karens, a PhD student studying Italian. In this episode, we discuss language classrooms. Specifically, we compare the unique challenges of instructors, whether they are teaching in their own first language or if they are teaching in a language that is not native to them. Eva Neelish, share their unique experiences, and give some advice for TAs both in the language classroom and for new TAs in general. Let's get started! Could you tell us a bit about your background and your current role at Rutgers? Hi,
1: thank you for having me here today. My name is Eilish Kirins. I'm a fourth year PhD student in the Italian department, at Rutgers University, um, however, I came from UMass Amherst, the uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst, where I did my undergraduate in communication, uh, and thereafter, I did some master's work there uh, for three years, where I had the opportunity to dive into teaching uh, Italian language, which is not my first language, um, and so I was coming from uh, an experience in Korea, where I was teaching English to Uh, young Korean students, Um, and that was my foundation for teaching languages. Um, Yeah, thanks for having me, too.
2: Um, I'm Eva Erbe. I'm also a fourth-year graduate student um, at the German department. Um, I'm teaching German language there currently, and I'm a German native speaker, so I'm teaching my native language. Um, Before I came to Rutgers, I studied um, in Vienna and the Netherlands. And through an internship, I got the opportunity to start teaching German as a foreign language in Bratislava, in Slovakia, at the university there. And through that, I found out that I really enjoy teaching language. I had no idea about that before, actually. And um, when I found out that the Rutgers PhD program comes with language teaching, I was very excited about it, because I felt like not only can I pursue my research interests, but I can also get better at teaching language, which I really enjoy a lot.
0: Could you describe some things that are typical to a language classroom or, or maybe things that are atypical but that you do? Just give us a sense of what happens in your language classrooms.
1: Good. So I just want to preface by saying this, that yes, no language class is ever going to be the same. Um, you also have to look at your audience, um, their level, uh, each student has a very different personality. And um, so you're going to be catering uh, every lesson to your student body. Um, but I'm, my my lessons do tend to follow uh, a structure. So I usually be open my class with some sort of uh, warm-up activity. And this is to make my students feel comfortable. It's to make them feel confident. It's uh, to get them into using communicating in the language. So usually this is an activity uh, in partners and it is either uh, review off of the homework that we'll be going over that day or it is review of uh, something we've gone over the last class. Um, And this in itself you know starting the class with review uh, may be looked down upon by other educators who say that it's best to end a class doing review when energy levels wane in the in the course. Um, I, however, like I like students to feel comfortable. I think the most important thing is that they come into class feeling uh, confident, comfortable, um, and that they've already mastered something before the lesson begins.
2: Yeah, um, what I would add here is. Um I think it's setting a tone, you know, um, at Rutgers, with the structure of um, the schools in New Brunswick and the campuses, it's sometimes they really have to hurry to class, so you have to give them a couple of minutes so that they get the chance to realize, okay, now I'm in a language class, now I'm supposed to think about something completely different than my organic chemistry class that I just came out of and had no idea what was happening, Um, or I nearly missed the bus and I have to come down. Um, What I normally do um, is I start off with a tongue twister, Mm -hmm. where I don't actually focus on the meaning of it, Mm -hmm. but just, you know, I always call it warming up the jaw. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're very funny tongue twisters, and in advanced levels, after the warm-up activity, I would actually go back and ask specific grammatical structures Mm -hmm. in there. But with my beginner students... um, I normally really focus on just, you know, being able to make sounds because there are specific sounds that for English natives, for instance, or we also do have a lot of Chinese natives or people from completely different languages, you get a feeling of what the specific problems are. Not for everyone, but there are general things that are more difficult for someone coming from from a specific language. So you can focus on that, and I normally pick the tongue twisters with that. Um, I think what is also important is that the structure in language classes very often comes from the fact that we teach with books, so there's a specific structure that comes by teaching with a book. Um, the book meaning it can be different like we at, on a beginner's level we have books that have activities and are very you know focused on communication on the higher levels we have books that are focused on grammar and all of the other activities um, are developed by the instructor themselves. Um, In communication classes, we do have um, smaller communication classes, like 1 to 1.5 credit. And there, the instructor develops all of the material themselves. But I think especially when you start teaching a language, one thing that helps you a lot is having a book. And if you have a good book, you have a good structure and you can sort of just bounce off of the ideas that are in the book. I think when you teach longer, you will like, no, this is not going to work for this particular group because they are not... Enjoying that kind of activity, I'm just gonna change it. But for instructors who um, start teaching, that's very helpful because you're not thrown into a classroom um, in a way that some other instructors in other fields might. Mm-hmm. Be.
1: I also think it's important to um, keep in mind that you're never bound to your book. So your book is a guide; it's a it's a good jumping off point. Uh, but I have often veered greatly from. content of my book. Um, So for example, uh, in the book that I believe we're currently using, um, the chapters are broken up into um, units based on uh, vocabulary. So we have a food chapter, we have uh, a chapter on the household, uh, we have a chapter on um, adjectives and describing people. So what I would never do as a teacher is I would never teach the household in isolation. And why? Because this is boring it's a little drab you know there's only so much we want to talk about the refrigerator and the bathroom and the tiles in our bathroom so I I'm always very careful to make sure that I'm pairing uh what might seem like a little bit more dry material with something uh a little bit more emotive right um so combining uh combining different units even or you know bringing bringing something outside of the book into that lesson
2: um I Completely agree, but I would also add that there sometimes are specific limitations, especially if there is more than one instructor teaching the same class, meaning that there are different sections for beginners German, beginners Italian, beginners Spanish. Because mm-hmm. I think that comes with certain limitations. If you're if it's very likely already that at the end of the semester there's not gonna be the same amount of sections anymore, but let's say just one less, there is a certain, I think, responsibility for us instructors to make sure that the bases are covered in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Because um, I personally don't want my students to feel like they have a disadvantage mm-hmm. just because we didn't end up doing everything. Mm-hmm. However, I completely agree that even with that kind of a more solid structure, you can bring in things. And mm-hmm. especially when you teach longer, you will do so automatically sometimes because you just suddenly think of this one activity that worked in another class. And you're just like, yes, of course I'm going to use that. And then maybe you figure out it works again or it it goes completely off and is not working because of whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But um, I think you do have and you do develop a certain toolkit that sort Mm of is part of your teaching style as a language instructor. Absolutely.
0: Could you give us some examples of specific activities, and Ava, you mentioned uh, the tongue twisters, and and Ailish, you mentioned some of these review activities at the beginning, Um, but could you give us some specific examples of activities that you would use uh, in like the bulk of the class after uh, these sort of introductory activities?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, as instructors, we use a vast variety of methodologies. I'm not going to get into the labels of these, but the one that we typically, oh, here I go, getting into the labels of these, <laughs> the one that I typically use is the communicative method. Um, and the idea is that we are not mm, explicitly teaching grammar, um, that students can deduct the grammar based on these communicative, communicative activities. Um, so, for the, the heart of my lesson, what I may do is I may start modeling uh, this grammar point with a more proficient student. When I say modeling it, mm, integrating the grammar point into uh, our dialogue. Um, thereafter, uh, I may open it up to the classroom. Like, oh, what is going on here? You know, um, uh, how do we break down, you know, what we're modeling uh, Thereafter. Uh, as a class, we will will put this into play um, via dialogues, um, having other students uh, communicating with other students, and you know that entails some prompting on my on my behalf as I guide them. So this, they're guided through this process, and thereafter I will break them up into groups, and at this point uh, they are either um, using this grammar point in interviews, uh, dialogues. Um, information gap activities um so you know what may be uh missing in your picture that is not in my picture things of this nature um some other activities I like to do outside of grammar but more specific to vocabulary is I love charades not just me the class (laughs) loves charades too um and charades is great, because now we're bringing in the whole body, um, and everyone has different learning styles. So this is good for people who are more kinesthetic learners, um, who like to be in movement, um, who are are aided, their memory is aided by actually acting out these activities. Um, and that, that tends to be uh, a crowd pleaser. Taboo is also a crowd pleaser, too, I have to say. And taboo, I think is really useful because what happens when we go to Italy and we do not you know it's our first trip to Italy. ooh, we have ooh, it's on the it's on the tip of our tongue this word that we that we need to use. So what do we do? We describe everything around this word, and this is what we're doing in taboo, right? We're not allowed to we're not allowed to say the word let's say "sun." this is the word that we're trying to convey, but we're we're using vocabulary all around it, and this this is very useful when you're going to Italy for the first time or you know your 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 country, yeah. Yeah, I think you've mentioned a
2: lot of activities and aspects that I do exactly the same, but some of them are slightly different. So so um, the communicative approach is something that you hear a lot about in language education in the U.S. Um, I think it's a good thing. I try to use it as much as I can. But at the same time, I personally think that there is moments where you need to use grammar as grammar especially also on a university level and one of the reasons might be the language that i'm teaching there is specific Mm -hmm. grammar rules Mm -hmm. that they have to know because if they don't know it they will never reach a certain level that they expected to reach Mm -hmm. Um, let's say an intermediate level or an advanced level and there are things that are just to give you an example the case system in german is very complicated and there at the beginning i it took me some time to realize that I really have to write these things down on a blackboard in simple, structured tables mm-hmm. so they see it. So i that's something that I think was in your answer as well, is we have to cater to these different kinds of learners all the time. And there are visual learners. There are very structured learners. Um, I have students who are very... I jokingly always call them grammar junkies because they need to know all of these endings and they memorize them and that gives them some some kind of confidence. Mm-hmm. So um, I try to cater to their need as well and that's one of the reasons why I really make these tables on the blackboard and I write it down mm-hmm. and it can be a funny situation because I normally on a regular basis just know how to use these things and then I'm like, hmm, What is the genitive exactly? You know, just to also Mm -hmm. show them that even as a native speaker, sometimes you need a minute or two to think about it. Um, It's also because um, the books in the U.S. sometimes really take back the grammar, which then, in my case, sometimes it happened that the students don't understand the importance of a specific rule Mm -hmm. when they are only introduced through activities. Um, so, but it can be also part of an activity to just uh, point towards a group and, and, and just, you know, bring everyone to them and everyone just listen what they just did. What is really great about this? Like, what is so interesting here that I want everyone to listen what they just said? Um, another thing that I do, I think my activities actually, so the basic st- structure of activities can be very similar, but I think they still vary from level to level. So, for instance, when I introduce the alphabet, um I play hangman hangman with them repeatedly and they love it. You know, and um it really helps. Or when I introduce the numbers, I play bingo with them. Um and it's these kind of little activities, and especially with beginners, I always try to show them how much they already know. Because mm-hmm. you know, that's always the thing that you feel like the deeper you get in a language, the bigger the field that you just Mm -hmm. don't know anything about seems to get. So I sometimes do these mind maps on the blackboard, um, which also helps to reiterate the articles. uh, Some similarities here with Italian. Um, It's hard to understand for an English speaker. Um, that there are different kinds of gender that are not um, bio- biological gender, but grammatical gender. Um, and if I just, you know, let everyone write down a couple of words on the blackboard, it becomes very visual what they already know, and they can leave the room also with with some kind of pride, what they already know, and not focusing too much on what they still need to learn. Um, and um, additionally, on a, on a more... Um, Upper level, I'd say, I use activities that are also longer, that consist of different parts. Mm -hmm. So with my advanced class right now, I work on um, a literary text. So we incorporate the grammar that we do in specific activities that are related to that literary text. Or today, I um, let them think about the main character what is the main character doing? And another group was focusing on nature, and then I brought them together, and I was like, okay, how is nature related to the character and vice versa? Mm -hmm. So you already, on an advanced level, have the opportunity to talk about motifs and get into literary or filmic analysis. Mm
0: -hmm. So all of these activities that you're describing, they're very, they sound very active. I mean, they're activities, Mm -hmm. right? So is participation part of the students' grades? And, And if so, how do you measure that, how do you, where does that factor into their course grade?
2: Okay, um, so um. I personally, what I do in my first session, and I can highly recommend, is explaining the difference between participation and attendance, mm-hmm. meaning in my class, showing up is probably five out of ten, um, and then everything else is going to be the participation. And with the participation, I also make very clear that participating doesn't mean producing correct work, but participating, meaning trying to produce something. Mm -hmm. And um, there are specific things that I say in advance, meaning um, if you fall asleep, you lose points. If you just open up your mouth and just pretend to speak when we do a group activity where everyone's supposed to do the same thing, for instance, the tongue twister, And i don't hear you you lose points Um, and of course i wish it were different and i could just say oh no i don't need this grade but uh, experience has shown me that it helps it also helps the quiet people and i think what i also try to do um, one of the advantages in language classes is they are not enormous which means i've never been in a situation where I wasn't able to know everyone's name, where I wasn't able to know their characters after a couple of weeks or a few weeks, let's say. So I'm also including that. So I would never expect someone who is a very shy person to pretend to be outgoing only for a participation grade. Because if they go to a German-speaking country, they're still going to be themselves. And if they are more quiet, I just want them to say the amount of things they would say anyways, but say it as good as they can.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Ava hit upon something really great for us at Rutgers is that um, our language classes tend to be more intimate. So we get to know each student personally. Uh, We get to know their character. uh, We get to know things all about their personal lives, which forms a very um, close-knit bond with this person, which is very beautiful. Um, You build trust. um, So you know that there are students who participate in different ways. So there are those students who are very vocal, and I, I'd say that because uh, of our culture, maybe we tend to value the more outspoken student in class more. Um, and I think that this there's a danger in this because other students participate in equally as important ways. Um, some are really great listeners, right? Uh, they're great at recalling things, um, helping those other students next to them, uh, taking excellent notes that they share with people. Um, and some of these students who are you know, less vocal, uh, it's merely a matter of maybe needing more time to process. They are perhaps innately uh, more quiet. That is fine, right? That is fine. Um, and so some of these students do better in groups, so often to take a lot of pressure off um I like to break them into groups of no more than 4 because then a little bit of social loafing sneaks in there um And this is where I would say that uh, they become a little bit more experimental, uh, perhaps a little more confident. Usually I try to give each student in this group a specific role, whether you're the scribe, whether you're the one who's relaying the information to the the class or uh, you're taking notes or putting something on the board. Um, So participation, uh, it's, 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 it's hard to define uh, how, how one should grade participation. But I will say that um, I'm a little bit different from Ava in the sense that uh, I'm less point-oriented in the sense that um, I see that my students are coming to every class, they're making an effort, they're making lots of mistakes and they're not feeling abashed about that, that's excellent. If I do notice that um, a student has been absent a few times, uh, he or she or they are coming in late to class, uh, then I will usually have a conversation with this student uh, after class or in, during office hours, or you know, that means taking a walk together and you know, figuring it out. Um, but I tend to be a little bit more holistic when it comes to grades in general.
2: Um, I think what I need to add with the points, what I do and what is happening generally, I think, also in my department, is we do have a rubric for participation. So um, there is specific, there's a specific guidance here that makes it also easier for me to be able to deduct points fairly. Mm -hmm. That said, I completely, completely agree that, um, Having conversations is really important, and that comes back to the fact that we have the advantage of being able to do so because we don't have too many students. Um, But I sometimes also think, um, and experience has so far not shown me otherwise, that being strict with participation makes some students realize that their behavior has consequences, in another way than just talking to them. That said, I would normally talk to them. And after that, if their behavior still continues, one very common example that I've experienced here is students being 15 minutes late and not letting me know that they have a class before because normally they don't, um, just coming in. So I would tell them that there's always gonna be information in the first 15 minutes that will be only there in the first 15 minutes. And if they continue not showing up, then there will be a deduction in the participation grade. Um, So I think there's, I agree that there's a holistic approach to it, but I personally found it also as an instructor, very helpful to do it on a session to session basis. So I write down who's absent, I write down who comes late, and then as soon as the class finishes, I go back and put the grades in immediately.
0: So you've both mentioned teaching a language that is your own native language. Um, But there's also been a bit of discussion about teaching a language that is not your own native language. Could you talk about any differences that you found between those two situations?
1: This is an excellent question. Um, So teaching in my native language, English, uh, I believe that I'm a much more spontaneous teacher. Um, and I'm not saying that I prepare less, but when I'm teaching in Italian, my non-native language, I come with a toolkit, uh, a t- an endless treasure chest of backup tools. So this could be... Um, videos as a jumping off point uh songs uh i tend to use more technology i've noticed when i am teaching italian as opposed to when i'm teaching english and i i do consider this to be perhaps a form of compensation because my italian accent is by no means uh, an accurate reflection uh of, of a real a real italian you know person from italy Um, So I like to give them other uh, outlets for listening to Italian native speakers from various regions in Italy, because as we know, there are lots of um, different colloquial languages, local languages, um, dialects. Uh, So it is important that they also have exposure to these. Um, But I do feel like I uh, have this treasure chest with me when I'm teaching Italian probably as a form of compensation for feeling like, oh dear, um, my accent, you know, isn't quite in line with, a, a native speakers, um, or, hmm, maybe I'm not as spontaneous, you know, if a student uses, uh, wants to know synonyms for a certain adjective, maybe I don't have them bing bong boom right there, uh, at the tip of my fingers, uh, whereas in, when I'm, when I'm teaching English, I, um, am incredibly spontaneous, um, what do I mean by this? I mean by uh, I could go I could go into a class um, with a, an idea of how things will go and very quickly it could go in a completely different direction um, and that would be completely fine with me. Uh, in, in my Italian class, uh, this obviously happens too because you, you never know how your students are gonna react. Um, you're never gonna know, uh, be able to project Uh, what mood they're in, you know, what uh, sparks their interest that day. Um, But I always have lots and lots and lots of organized backup.
2: Um, I think you've mentioned some very, very important aspects that I will, I think now sort of put my own twist on or work through. Um, Just as a heads up, I've been not teaching another language, but I've been teaching... um, Comparative literature in English here at Rutgers, being a non-native speaker. So I think teaching my own language and teaching in my own language comes with something that I think was in your answer as well, which is the gut feeling. Um, Not all the time, though. So I make it very clear from the beginning that, A, I might put up my phone, which is always on flight mode, of course, but there's a dictionary on it. And um, we have less vocabulary in German than in English. So sometimes I might not be 100% sure if there's not another important meaning for the German word that I can think of, or if there's another English word for the German word. Um, So I'm very open about that. Additionally, I speak a specific variety of German, which is not considered to be the main variety. And many of my students want to go to Germany and not to Austria. So what I do is I try to show them and I try to expose them, and good books do that too, to Austrian-German, Germany-German, Swiss-German, and even Liechtenstein-German. So uh, Because they are very different, especially Swiss-German can be very different. So I try to make it clear all the time that what they are exposed to is one of the varieties. That doesn't mean that I speak a dialect, Um, but a standard version that very many people consider to be a dialect. So I try to incorporate this, you know, like cultural lessons Mm -hmm. that come with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And they respond to this very well, actually, because they are interested in, let's say, Berlin. But when I come there with all of my knowledge about how life is in Vienna, for instance they get very interested in it as well because there's, you know, like a sort of relation that they can build with someone who's from a specific area who can tell all of this, you know, like anecdotal background information. Um, And in comparative literature, I think one thing that happened to me is that this gut feeling just is gone, which weirdly enough, sometimes it's easier for me to be strict with grammar in English Mm -hmm. because it took me years to figure it out with all of the exceptions in English and um, struggling through my first years of learning English, Mm. um, I know exactly when to use who and when to use whom in a relative clause. Whereas in German, sometimes I get a question and I'm like, I've never thought of this. I don't know. Mm. know? And in an advanced level, for instance, I sometimes pose the question towards students then. And Mm -hmm. does anyone know it? Because some of them have studied German for such a long time Mm -hmm. that they're going to give me the answer. Um, And German is very rule-based as an additional info. So (laughs) I normally can, you know, tell them, I might not know the rule yet, but I will come back with the rule. Mm. That, That level normally just, you know, I don't have that in English. That said, I had an incident that really will stick with me for a very long time when I taught in English. I don't know the word in particular anymore, but English spelling is sometimes extremely random. And yeah. <laughs> and there was a word and I knew its meaning, but I had no idea how to spell it. And I was expected to write it on a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just open about it. And that's I think that's that yeah. doesn't change when I teach in my own language or not. I'm open about the fact that I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. But as an instructor, I will do my best to give you the answer that you need. Mm-hmm. If I can't give it to you immediately, then later on. So what I did in this particular moment was just asking another one of the students, can you please help me out? How do you spell that? Mm-hmm. And it's it worked really well because I felt like some of the students in that particular class... We're not really seeing me as a human, mm. and we're seeing me as this, mm. you know, like on a pedestal, and they were not humanities majors, and she's this person who told us that you have to question everything and there's nothing that's really black and white and nothing's true and nothing's false. And then by just seeing that I have this, you know, very basic problem of not being able to spell a word, I became human Mm -hmm. and they were able to connect with me very differently afterwards. So Mm -hmm. I think that's something I have all the time when I, doesn't matter which language I teach in.
1: I think that's a great point, Eva. So uh, teaching Italian to uh, American students I am very capable of empathizing with them. Um, At the outset of the semester, I'm very transparent about my journey to learning Italian. Uh, I didn't begin learning Italian until I was around 20 years old, which is the age of most of my students. Um, And it happened very happenstance. When I took uh, a year off of school to go and teach English in Italy, and I met a uh, a strapping Italian man, and, um, you know, I learned... Uh, very slowly in that environment. And then when I returned to the United States, I took classes more formally. So I like to tell them about my experience Um and how I initially started teaching myself and uh, I give them an overview of many programs that I did in Italy so that they have an objective like a goal oh maybe one summer I can go in, and do that English program too or I can go uh, and work with students around Italy too um, so I like to inspire them at the outset at the outset of the course um, and to be very real about my experience, I tell them all of the silly mistakes I made, the embarrassing mistakes I made. Uh, and they love it. They just, they, they giggle so much. Um, and then another thing is that Ava hit upon is that, no, I'm not always going to have the answer to their questions. And it is really important that you aren't genuine, that you are honest, that you do not beat around the bush and that you say, I don't know, that is a great, that is a great question. Can we look it up? And then it becomes a collaborative experience. And this takes away the hierarchy in the classroom. It makes it a much more collaborative experience. Um, and this is something that I, I do think that students appreciate is when uh, the instructor also participates in activities as opposed to standing back more passively and watching, but actually jumps in with a group um, without being overbearing, of course, uh, but empathy, I think that I'm very capable of empathizing with the American students that I teach. And I didn't have the same empathy when I was teaching English to Korean students in Korea, uh, partly because grammar is something that I learned you know it's intuitive to me um whereas when I'm teaching Italian I'm I understand where they're coming from I'm able to see where they're having trouble and really break it down for them because I struggle just like them and I think that this helps them break down a lot of barriers they have all mental barriers so, oh no I can't learn this language I'll never be able to learn this language oh yes you will look at me I'm your proof Um, And and they get a lot out of that. And I think that when they start learning the language there is, I I think that um, teachers who do not speak Italian as their native language are a huge asset. Perhaps as we go higher up into advanced courses and it comes to writing and things of this nature, um, maybe the native speaker is more appreciated in that context.
2: Yeah, I completely agree that there are advantages thinking about one's own background in regards to language education. So what I always do in the, have in the back of my mind is experiences that I had as a language student. So um, from coming from the environment of the school system in Austria, I had to take three languages during the course of middle and high school. And uh, I had bad and excellent instructors so I think back to these moments, and I think back to what was the problem with specific kinds of instructions. For instance, I've been told that I'm not going to be able to speak English ever, so here I am. So that's that's one of these things that I think back a lot, and that's also something I think that manifests itself in my feedback. Mm-hmm. And e- I think even when you don't teach a different language, when you actually teach your native language just thinking about the experiences you had as a student of a specific language, um, thinking about the way you study best, just going back to yourself every once in a while doesn't mean that you have to focus on your own experience and think this is the experience of everyone ever learning a particular language. Not at all. Mm-hmm. But for instance, when they make a particular mistake in German, which is the IE and the EI in German, it's Wein means wine, Wien means Vienna. Um, I always tell them that, and I always tell them it's not something I didn't do in English. So you can sometimes also draw from other languages. Uh, Or I tell them that I made horrible mistakes when I translated Latin, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to not continue with it. Um, So I'm very open about, you know, like my own experiences. And what I did over the last summer was taking a language class again, starting a new language. I took Spanish. I mean, I have a background of a little bit of knowledge in French, so it was not completely new to me. But it really helped me. You forget, and especially since I teach my native language, you forget about how it feels sitting in a class. Someone's using the communicative approach, is speaking to you, and you don't understand every word. Because you're just assuming, well, I'm fluent in this language, so of course they understand everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you, you think about, okay, well, I really speak too fast in my own languages, or you just, you know, you have this feeling of trying to figure out what the instructor is trying to tell you now, by having probably understood not even 50% of what they said. So I realized, okay, you know, like, I will be more careful in the way I use my body, I will try to use it even more, Mm -hmm. because that was something that one of the instructors in my class was doing so excellent, Mm -hmm. or she was drawing a lot on the the blackboard, Mm -hmm. which I sometimes do, but sort of, didn't do as much as I do right now. So I personally can highly recommend, and I think I will keep that for myself. Um, If I continue teaching language, I will try to take language classes every once Mm -hmm. in a while to just understand a person learning a language Mm -hmm. because you sort of start forgetting about it. It's just like... Of course I can produce it now, I, and I, I don't remember how it felt like when someone was talking to me in English and I didn't understand anything. I can't remember. And this brings, me, brings you back to that, and you're, you're like, oh yeah, right, I have to do this now <laughs> forever.
0: <laughs> have either of you experienced students responding to you differently, depending on whether the language that you're teaching them is your own native language or, uh, or a foreign language?
2: I mean, I did. I think one of the main reasons was that uh, my comparative literature class was actually not a language class, was a require possible requirement class. So it was a completely different body of students. That said, I think what I more realize is actually how different my thinking is in those two languages. Mm-hmm. So um, my German thinking, I if I had to describe it, and this is very you know personal here. I consider my German speaking to be uh, thinking to be a lot more all over the place mm-hmm. and very jumpy and lo- full with, you know, mm-hmm. nice sounding words and n- where I don't really know what they mean, but I know the sound of it and I know different, you know, changing meanings and everything. So I play it around mm-hmm. very differently with the language, whereas in English, although my vocab I consider to be solid, it's not the same as a native speaker. Mm-hmm. I started learning it when I was 10. Um, So there's a more reduced vocab that I can draw from. That means I can sometimes be a lot more precise. I think maybe that's also the differences between German and English in a little bit more general way, but that's my personal experience. I come to the point a lot quicker in English. Um, I also think that my humor changes a little bit because by now I sort of figured out that some American students respond differently to when I literally use the same kind of humor that I would use with my German students because they have never been exposed to, you know, a sarcastic <laughs> Austrian before, um, which can also be, of course, like a teachable moment for both the students and yourself. But in general, I think I'm, I'm two different people. Just to refer to and Worf, who had the hypothesis that every language comes with a specific kind of thinking and vice versa.
1: So I think for me, uh, my context has dictated a lot how my students react to me. So for example, teaching in Korea for a hagwon. And a Hagwan is an after-school program where students come to learn English. Um, in this Hagwan, we followed a very rigid um, lesson plan. Um, Everything was very controlled, very structured. We had cameras in our classroom. Uh, we were monitored closely to make sure that our timing was just right for every activity. So basically through that experience, I learned everything and more that I do not want to be as an instructor. Um, it was lacking a compa- a, a, an element of compassion. And uh, I didn't like the way that made me feel. And I didn't like the way I felt my students perceived me. It seemed like it was very hierarchy based. I am the instructor, Um, the students will listen attentively, they will not challenge me, Um, they will obey, Uh, they will always uh, look to you for instruction. And there was no room for any conversation that veered from a textbook. So there was a lot of distance emotionally I felt between uh, myself and the students. Uh, that experience, uh, I, I realized that um, I needed to be in an environment that was where I I could feel more like myself, right? And I believe that that's how I feel in the university system, um, especially here at Rutgers, where uh, I can definitely uh, imbue the class with my own creativity uh, and my own personality and the personalities of each student. Um, uh, I'm able to step back and say, "Time out! This activity is not working." Or "Time out! You are not reacting well to this. Let's uh talk about it." Or "Let's change activity." You know, it was much more open, right? Less one size fits all. Um, and because of the nature of our lessons that are open and are flexible and more fluid, uh, I think my my students and I we have a much better relationship, right? Uh, I listen to them, they listen to me. It's much more collaborative, but that's what I was missing when I was teaching at um, there Unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of collaboration by nature of the program. And I also think something that we haven't me- um, mentioned
2: yet is the fact that we do have pedagogy training as language instructors here at Rutgers, which is very helpful because now that I listen to, it, you have to say, Alish we have this meta level sometimes when we sort of we re- we get trained to reflect on what we're doing here and i think this is really really crucial to become a good mm-hmm. language teacher mm-hmm. and this also draws back to the idea that not all of your sessions like none of your sessions will ever be the same because mm-hmm. apart from the group and everything we as language instructors are evolving so that's one of the reasons i think why getting pedagogy training helps us understand that there's a specific kind of student body in front of us. We, as instructors, are different every day. We are different. We have a different toolkit. Because our toolkit, I I don't know how it feels for you, Elish, but for me, it's like, I feel like it's open every class. And then I throw out three things every class and put three new things mm-hmm, in. And then I nice. open it again the next <laughs> class. And the three things go out. And three <laughs> things go in. So it's like this, I think my pedagogy training here has helped me to have this toolkit and to sort of adapt it over and over again Mm -hmm. and thus also realize who am I as a teacher? Mm -hmm. Who am I? What is my teaching style? Mm -hmm. Because I sometimes don't even know how I was, how I'm teaching and then I had a peer observation Mm -hmm. or a pedagogy class where we talked about something and it just clicks and you're like oh yes exactly that's part of my teaching style without me knowing it before mm. and um, i think that's one of the great things about teaching language that language pedagogy there is a lot of tools already there is a lot of research there is a lot of data that we can actually draw from from so we don't have to although everything's experimental that we already know some of the things that might not work for some students or might work for some students and uh, that's why I'm, I'm actually very grateful that we have these additional opportunities to get a little bit of background information, to get a little bit of training. I can only speak for my department, but we have to observe three people teaching before we allow allowed to teach our own class. Mm-hmm. And I saw three very, very diverse people, and I was able to get so much out of each and every one of them because yeah. everyone in a classroom pre- teaches differently, and that's beautiful.
0: Was there anything that you could share with us that in the, in the dichotomy of the two situations, did you have any experiences that really stuck out to you, uh, that resonated with you, that really illustrated uh, the differences in, in those two situations?
2: I think it's for me it's actually the opposite. I think what I took out of it is that there are so many similarities okay. in teaching um, a comparative literature content class and a language class that I would have never thought of before. Meaning also that uh, my ideas of activities in one class bleeding into the other class and vice mm. versa. I think what I have to mention here is that my comparative literature class was an active learning class set up in an active learning group environment which means that the entire basis of this class um, was to have group work and coming from a language class where we work with groups all the time where we change up the activities all the time helped me a lot and then at the end i also realized that some of the activities that worked in my active learning classroom they were bleeding into my language class because I realized that in one room, which I haven't realized before I started teaching the active learning class, there were many whiteboards mm-hmm. and I was only using two of them all the time yeah. with like two big groups and then I came up with the idea, maybe I can use the other two too and mm-hmm. have like small groups and everyone works on whiteboards. So it's like, it sounds very obvious but it took me some time to figure it out. So I think it's, there is very, there there are very many similarities. There is some way of thinking that you try to teach, some way of engaging with language and humanities, that can be similar. Mm-hmm. And I actually, that's actually what I took out of it. And if you had asked me before that, I'd be like, no, it's completely different. It's it's like two completely different things. And no, it's not. It's a lot more similar than I thought and anticipated. Mm.
1: I think in my two different experiences, one teaching in Korea, English and teaching at the university setting, Italian, um, the emotional aspect, um, teaching here in the United States, I think community building has been really essential to class dynamics. Um, again, coming back to making students feel comfortable and each student feeling valued and that they have a voice within the classroom setting, um, this idea that we get to learn so much about her students through the language, it's almost like, sometimes I almost feel like a counselor or a therapist of sorts, or not just me, other students too feel this about their peers. And the fact that, oh, I know that Gina is a journalism major. And the idea that, oh, yes, we can do uh, a task-based activity where we're going to do interviews today. You know, so catering it towards each student's major. Because in your classes, you have people who study math, people who study uh, uh, English majors. You have, you know, a vast array of students. So this just is, again, this idea that uh, you can really tweak um, and mold your lessons to to each student and, and each class. Um, and this was really lacking in my first teaching experience in Korea. This idea that, um, you could use a language as a vehicle for expressing yourself, um, uh, for getting to know other students and other, uh, other mindsets.
0: So there's one aspect of, uh, language classes that always sort of intrigued me, uh, coming from someone that has no experience teaching uh, in a language, this idea of there's sort of formal rules for the language, certain grammatical structures that, like, this is the rules for the, the formality of it, but that's not always how we all speak, and especially if this is your native language, you speak speak a certain way, and and maybe the way you naturally speak wouldn't necessarily match exactly the formal rules, and and maybe this can take the slang, form of slang, but maybe just sort of generally speaking in sort of an informal tone. I mean, does that come up in the classrooms? I mean, how do you overcome that um, so that the students are learning what they're supposed to be learning, and and the textbook says this is the formal thing, and this is how it needs to be. Um, especially if, if like I said, if it's it's your native language, you, do you speak differently? Um, how do you overcome that?
2: Actually, the thing that comes with the communicative approach in the book that we at the German Department for be, uh, are using for beginners right now is that is very spoken based. So um, there are moments where, um, for instance, one example is that the first time they um, they encountered a, a, a specific case is that they say in the book, it's the book of Charlotte instead of it's Charlotte's book. And in German, so far, standardized, you still have to write it's Charlotte's book and not it's the book of Charlotte. However, you say it all the time. Everyone says it all the time. So I point it out and I tell them, this is okay But this is the book really showing you how it's spoken because the communicative approach part of it is that you try to produce authentic spoken Mm -hmm. language very, very often. Um, What I also do all the time is speaking a specific variety of a language comes with the fact that there are different words for different things. And I normally combine it with an anecdote that I had with a Germany German speaker, for instance, or like the word for chair, for instance. I would always use a different one and then they think of a comfy chair, but I just mean the regular chair. And because the comfy chair word for them is the same as for me for a regular chair. And these things stick with my students. And some of them then can decide, you know, which which one do I want to use? Which one does feel comfortable for me? Um, So I think that there is one way of teaching these kinds of things is by making it very apparent. And by um, that said, sometimes there's a specific sensitivity that you don't really have yet and that you have to learn, meaning I have been using a word or two where I then realize this is actually something that is not. Standardized German, Mm -hmm. but something that might be even more dialectal from where I'm from. Um, I'm just honest about it. And I think that's the beauty about teaching language. One part of teaching language is showing the students that it has rules and they have to be able, for standardized tests, for instance, to produce something a certain way. But the beauty about a language is that it's always in flux Mm -hmm. and that. You, once you get to a certain level, you can use it and you can make it your own in whatever way you
1: think is most fitting for you. Mm, yeah. Um, so, yes, I speak a very standard Italian. That is the Italian one hears on the news stations in Italy or the Italian that the, the newspapers are written in. Um, And it is important that they realize that, uh, again, that there is lots of colloquial, um, dialect, um, a lot of very colorful dialects. So often we have a class that's based on dialects, um, or we do an activity in which students go and they talk to their own families. Um, So, for example, I was teaching at a summer program in Rome this past summer, um, and uh, at least half of my students had family from Sicily, from Florence, uh, from Rome, and uh, these students were able to share a lot of the expressions that they use. Um, so, yeah, it's very important that they know uh, and realize that there are many different ways of saying the same thing, right? Um so one way that I did this in Rome was that, you know, we had this amazing city at our feet. Was that I would have them uh, interact with the society around them this meant going to uh various restaurants around the area and interviewing owners about their story how how they arrived uh to open a restaurant in rome um, noting the type of language that they're using the register that they're using or going to we went to a part of rome where they got to interview um uh, owners of art galleries and noting again oh like what you know was that if. Was that accent from Rome or was that accent from Florence? So they 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 start to uh, develop an ear uh, for the various um, the various local languages. Um, yes,
2: I think um, one way that you can mimic that to a certain degree, teaching both of us teach a language right now that is not overly present all the time here. I think Italian a little bit more in New Jersey than German, for instance. But it is a foreign language. So one way of modeling that, let's put it this way, is trying to get as much authenticity in the classroom as possible, being it through your own um, variety and making obvious, or as a non-native speaker, bringing in material, bringing in Italian speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever there is an activity, um, I know from my book that they really, from the beginning, start using people for their recordings that have different varieties mm-hmm. so even if someone speaks i can hear oh that person is at least supposed to come from switzerland um so i i use it all the time i'm always asking them did you hear like what do you think about the r did you hear difference in the r how would you describe the difference in the r what is that or even with my beginners yesterday i showed them the weather forecast Weather forecast for Germany, the weather forecast for Austria, and the weather forecast for Switzerland. And then I just, they're really beginners. So some of the things they didn't understand, but I discussed with them, what is the difference? And they were like, well, Germany, German is the fastest. And I was like, yes, I think so too. And just, you know, like creating a sort of sensitivity and thus also being able to, to make them excited about it mm-hmm. because you can tell them, there's all this different kinds of things that you can choose from whatever you like and you can make it your own and i think that really gets them excited the the moment where they feel it is not this you know fake thing like a construction that is sort of just rule-based weird things that you have to memorize but no it's something that is actually
1: for very very many people daily reality Mm -hmm. yeah using uh the local languages can be very fun. And I think um, this also plays out in my own life in which often I'll be having a conversation in English and I will interweave some Italian in there because, it, oh, it seems so appropriate. And I've noticed that my, when I was in Rome, my students started doing this with a dialect from Sicily, which was very, very exciting.
0: <laughs> One question that I really like to ask my guests who are graduate students. As PhD students, we have to be doing research. I mean, that is what the degree is about. But clearly you're both uh, devoted educators and you think about teaching and you think about education. So how have you found ways to balance the two? How have you been able to be both a devoted teacher and a researcher?
1: So as graduate students, our priority should be, um, as our uh, advisors tell us our research. Um, however, I think that we are in the education system at a great time because it's now changing, where um, teaching is becoming just as valued as research, uh, which is great news for me. Um, I love my research, but uh, I tend to innately, perhaps, be more um, more drawn to teaching. So I would say that I put about equal time into my teaching and my research at this point. I'm teaching a, uh, a class on fascism and culture this semester, which takes um, a lot of preparation on my behalf, and I, and I love it. Um, and it is very time consuming. So I would say that uh, I spend my half of my um, work time preparing for my lessons and doing my research. If I'm lucky, I can combine the two. So I've been able to integrate some of my own research into my lessons, which is wonderful because obviously I'm very enthusiastic about it. Um, The students offer multiple perspectives on it, and it becomes very collaborative. So any chance you have to uh, combine your research and your teaching is just amazing. Uh, Probably rare, but really wonderful. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I can also just agree with that. To be honest, I I think it's always changing with me what is my priority and what, what become, comes, to, for, comes into the foreground. Also, especially if we think of the structure of a semester, during midterm season, I might be focused more on teaching. Uh, during the beginning, when I've already prepared the first lesson, lessons over the summer, I might be more focused on research. Um, so I think that there is some sort of... Um, changing. What I've been fostering for myself is compartmentalizing, um, meaning that I really try to have um, a day during the weekend where I'm doing all of the grading, I'm writing my lesson mm-hmm. plans, I'm thinking about the structure of my lessons, and then I only have to revisit it, let's say, an hour before I go to class. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could say I've always been successful, but I think I'm in a process of finding this now that I I feel like it took me some time to really get to the point where I feel comfortable as an instructor. So, for instance, one of my biggest fears was writing a lesson plan on Sunday and teaching it on Thursday. I was so worried that I forget the important Mm. things and I'm not writing them down. Um, that I would be like, no, let's do it on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Now I'm confident enough that I know I can memorize it. I can remember everything that is important. I can go through it again um, um, a few minutes before class starts. And that gives me the freedom to then, during the week, focus on meetings Research service, whatever comes up. I mean, we are graduate students, so we never bored during the week mm-hmm. anyways. <laughs> and, um, So I think that's just one approach that I've been sort of trying to incorporate over the last semester or two um, and um, I think I'm on the right path for myself and I think one advice that I would give is Don't worry. You have to find your own way mm-hmm. and you also have to find out what is your priority. Mm-hmm. If it's teaching in the moment, if it's teaching in general, if it's research research in the moment or in general, it's fine. We, as you've said, Eilish, we have these options that we can think of. Mm-hmm. So um, why not, you know, like try to also use your own time as a PhD student to look and explore in these different
1: directions mm-hmm. and
2: find yourself in your academic environment.
1: Is either has definitely said something that resonates very much with me about finding your own way. I've even seen this play out in how Ava and I both work. So I begin writing a paper Whoosh kebab months in advance, and I write a paragraph per day. Even I always, you know, we always make fun of each other because she can sit down and write a paper, a wonderful paper, in a week, and I'll be at the library. I'm like, okay, I've written my paragraph for the day. So I believe that it is very important that uh, you listen to yourself and your own limits. Um, things that work for your best friend are not going to work for you, um, and you need you need to recognize that. And and you like, you learn you learn. I think your first year as a graduate student is a huge learning experience about uh, your own limits. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think if you're very well aware of
2: your own, you know, like struggles during grad school, you can be understanding towards the struggles of your undergraduate students. Because we all know that everyone that we have in all of our classes, it's not the only class they take very often it's not even part of their major. Um, So being understanding towards that, but at the same time drawing a line and being like, just because I have an understanding for this doesn't mean I give you a free pass Mm -hmm. and be like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, but they tried... um, you know, like I couldn't do that for myself, mm-hmm. and thus it really helps me to be like, no, I cannot do that for myself, so I also cannot really mm-hmm. do that for you. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I don't understand your struggles, mm-hmm. I very much do. Yeah. So I think that's also something we can use, you know, like reflecting upon our own um, things that we go through mm-hmm. um, makes me at least more, uh, feel more empathy towards undergraduate students yeah. and their struggles.
1: And I think that my during my first year of teaching at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, I perhaps was too patient. And you say, oh, well, how can you be too patient? Isn't that great? No, because there, there comes a limit where um, you're actually impeding these students by not setting some boundaries. Um, you're, you're setting them back. Uh, and sometimes students, they really do need boundaries. Uh, your paper is due on this day, therefore, I expect it on this day, unless we've had a, conver- a conversation and your reason is legitimate, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. That was probably one of the biggest
2: differences from me coming from having taught German in Slovakia to here, because I taught advanced students there, so they were, and they do have it in their own language. They were using the formal and informal addressation. And when someone uses the formal addressation to someone in German, even if they are older than you, there's a specific distance that automatically gets generated. Meaning, I had to really think about my own authority in a classroom Mm -hmm. when I came to the U.S. Because I felt like I had to draw boundaries, which I didn't have to do in Slovakian. Mm. I still think to a certain degree that was related to the fact that they were already fluent in the language and they really understood this difference between a formal and informal way of talking to someone. So um, I think that was really also something crucial I had to learn Mm. um, during, you know, becoming a teacher and during teaching that it's great to be the cool person who's totally fine with everything and really understands where you're coming from. But that's also not the perfect teacher. Mm. Because they will never tell you that if you don't do this, there's going to be a problem. And I think in languages, we do have the advantage of being able to tell them immediately what the consequences will be. Meaning, you will not be able to make that kind of a complex sentence. You will not be able to write a text message to your friend if you don't look at this in more detail. So I think we can give them like direct examples on how their behavior influences their the way their language learning and the language skills develop Mm -hmm. so that's something that i use in you know like just explaining to them um, how not doing the homework or not learning vocabulary influences the class and we are also lucky there is very much background information very much research very much data so when you have a data-driven person in front of you you just pull something up and you're like look here here it's it that peop that these people did the research, they showed us why we actually give you a vocab to study before class. Mm-hmm. Why we do this, you know, approach to let you do homework, then write your draft, grade your draft and then you do it again. Mm-hmm. So I think there's many ways of also explaining to our students why we're doing stuff.
0: So to finish up, um could you give one piece of one or two pieces of advice for Either language TA specifically, or or just generally uh, new TAs.
1: So I think it's important that you are your most genuine self in your classroom. Um, so for me, this means by the end of the semester, my students know that I love cats, but I also know that um, Jimmy is working uh, and he has a full time job. I also know that Jane sometimes doesn't get to eat breakfast. Um, so that your communication is really open. That's really key is making sure that your students trust you um, and that they trust each other um, and that they can come to you with even issues that uh, transcend the classroom language learning setting. Um, This could be that, uh, you know, that you may need to direct them to CAPS or um, this may mean that they want to go for a walk with you. And I think that, uh, you need to realize that your role is not just for that hour and 20 minutes inside a classroom. You have a responsibility to them outside of the classroom. Um, they will feel much more uh, comfortable with you if they feel like you are your most genuine self. And again, this also um, means that they know that you make mistakes. And they know that you've struggled to get where you are at, that, at, at this point in time too. Um, at the end of the day... Um, we're all trying to be our best selves, um, but you know this entails being very honest with ourselves and our students. Yeah, I think um, I might
2: have a little bit of a different approach here um, in a sense. I don't know who said that to me, but I remember when I was at the beginning of starting to teach at Rutgers that someone said to me, it's okay if they're not your friends but your students, which really helped me with um, understanding that kind of authority that I sometimes need to bring into the classroom. And I think that's very much, again, coming from a very different university environment. We are a little bit older, we don't have the entire structure of an undergrad education, all of these things play into this. I think this was very helpful for me. That doesn't mean that I don't try to be my genuine, genuine self, I completely agree. But it also, for me, exactly means drawing these boundaries that we've talked about. And I think the second thing that I would highly recommend doing is think about your first session, think about the syllabus, and think about the fact that you will set a lot of norms and a lot of standards for your class in your first session. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't be flexible about it. It doesn't mean that it's going to change but I had no idea about the importance of the first session before I started teaching. Um, So that is probably something that I recommend everyone doing and especially incoming TAs. Um, And I think I have a third one, which is actually ask your colleagues, ask your friends for help. Um, Eilish and I have been talking about teaching. Um, I've been talking to people from other fields Uh, that this exchange um, is one of the things that makes it so exciting teaching at Rutgers that you're able to engage with faculty and staff but also with fellow TAs and they can come from a very different field they can have very different ideas there's always something you can take out of what they have to say and what they have experienced.
0: My thanks again to today's guests Ava and Eilish. Any resources mentioned in this episode will be posted on our show notes, which are on our blog at tapruckers.wordpress.com. You can find more information about the TA project at our home on the web at tap.ruckers.edu. To keep up to date with the latest TA project news, follow us on Facebook or Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing with a friend. Until next time, thanks for listening.